Hello and welcome to the World of Intelligence, an open source intelligence podcast brought to you by the Jane's Intelligence Unit. For more information on how we can help with OSINT training and development, go to janes.com forward slash OSINT training. For this podcast episode, I'm here with Mark Wilson from the Jane's Intelligence Unit. Hi, Terry. Hello, everyone. Um, we're going to talk today about searching for information and some of the changes that we've seen over the last month or so. And as this is the last podcast episode of 2019, maybe we'll recap a little bit some of the bigger changes that we've seen over the course of the year and how that's affected some of our open source intelligence work more generally. Um, Where I wanted to sort of start off really was talking about searching and the way that we've seen some shifts recently. There's been some interesting changes in the search engine world. Um, Google has changed the way that it presents results to people in the sense that um, what they're doing now is using, I guess, smarter uh, ways of actually assuming what people are looking for based on their search terms. So in some ways, they've sort of watered down again the reliance on Boolean logic, which is something we always cover in our training courses. It's something we always teach people, different ways of combining together their search terms Mm. to help filter and narrow down what they're looking for. That is uh, an interesting area because... The way the search engines are going, they're trying to make them smarter and smarter all the time. So they're not relying on people actually putting in exactly what they are looking for. They're making more and more assumptions and smarter assumptions as well. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing for online researchers? It's it's tough to say, I think, because for me personally as a researcher, I kind of want to be able to be very specific in what I'm putting in. Mm. But at the same time, I do appreciate that the improvements that tools like google are making it does it does make it a bit more of a shortcut so it does sometimes present you with results which you know in that first couple of pages you're getting a quick snapshot of what you need before you can before you then go on to manipulating maybe your search terms a bit to drill down into the massive information that it presents you so yeah at the moment i'm sort of thinking maybe it's a good thing as long as people, especially professional researchers, are still conscious of what it's doing and what's going on in the background of the way that the search engines present results, because I think often people aren't, especially, I, I guess, non-research uh, professionals, people who are just using the search engine yep. normally day to day. They're just sticking in one or two keywords and whatever comes up on the first page, they rely on the search engine to give them what they're looking for. Um, for that purpose, yeah, this is probably going to be a positive. Um, but for us as researchers, we, we we just need to be more conscious of what's going on. And, yeah. I mean, you know, I'd be asking the question, is the search engine giving me what it thinks I need? Yes. Um, yeah. And, you know, that could <laughs> be was, positive or negative. Was, I mean, that was always the case, yeah. I think, to, you know, yeah. to an extent, um, yeah. especially with Google. Um, is it getting better, though, at working out what you want yeah. on its own without you having to put in too many inputs or more inputs? Yeah, I think it is. I Certainly, guess. based on what they've they've posted on there, you know, if, if anyone's interested who's listening, you can go onto this Google um, blog, the search engine blog that they have, and they post latest updates and things like that, changes that they've made. Um, and this was a change that we saw a little while ago that they they posted information about. But yeah, I mean, it's it's one I'm slightly torn on because I I do appreciate what they're trying to do and I appreciate the improvements they're trying to make, whether it 
does help us as, as researchers. I don't know whether it just makes people more lazy as well. That's the other impact that I'm, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm more concerned about is, you know, do we just get used to just actually yeah. researching more casually rather than actually thinking more carefully about what it is we're trying to get out of the search engine? I mean, yeah, thinking more strategically about how you go about searching for information on the internet. Um, what do you think is the solution in terms of, I mean, is it is it to really cast your search over wider, over more search engines or... Mm. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? I mean, one of the things we've always said to people is, look, the, the search engine you're using it is only going to present you results from within its own index. So mm-hmm. whatever it's gathered, whatever it's added to that index. Um, in, the, in the case of something like Google, it has a huge index. So that's why people use it as a sort of search engine of first yeah. resort. Yeah. But there are a lot of other search engines out there. It's worth trying them, especially if you feel like you're not getting the results that you think might be out there from the search engine that you're using. Um, and if you also, if you think you're falling more into a bit of a filter bubble, so we talk about the filter bubble concept where, you know, the search tools, search engines, websites even send you back to information and, and sources of information that are familiar to you, that they know you're more likely to click on based on the data that they've got about you. So it could be from your previous search history. Yeah. It could be from your cookies in your browser. If you're using Google and you're logged in, it could be based on all the other information Google has about you, You know what comes up in your Gmail, what you've looked at on YouTube, all of those things they can combine together, so it potentially. Could, could be saving you time from one perspective, but on, on another perspective, it's yeah. problematic, I guess. It could save you time because it could just immediately... I mean, the, that's the idea anyway. I mean, certainly from the Google perspective, they want to have all of that information so they can quickly work out exactly what it is you're interested in, but also which are the sources that you think are the most trustworthy or reliable. And it presents you that selection in the first couple of pages of results, perhaps, um, so that you don't then have to dig through all the rest. Yeah. Yeah. However, you know, if you're searching on a topic where perhaps you're you're not always familiar with the, the sources or whatever, you know, you don't necessarily want to rely on the search engine because other people or people who run websites, online information sources, etc., they could be potentially trying to game the search engines and trying to get up the rankings and present themselves as reliable sources when they might not be. Um, so you can't necessarily just rely on the judgment of the search engine to match up what it thinks you're interested in with what you might or what it assumes you think are reliable sources or you, or you, otherwise you run the risk also of missing potentially useful information. That's totally it, isn't yeah. it? That's one of my concerns from that. I mean, if, mm. you're always, if you're producing a piece of work and you always go to five same sources, mm-hmm. um, that's good in one sense. You know your sources, but you're always that question is always in the back of your mind. Yeah. Do you really know your sources? And I guess you always want to explore new sources for yeah. new information, right? Yeah, so I guess yeah. that's a that's a problem where you have a search engine that is learning your your sources in a way. Yep. It's giving you back what it thinks you mm. want. But then as, as, a, as an online researcher, really, you want the widest yeah. uh, section of source, sources to get, uh, you know, the best the best reporting that you can. So Totally. Yeah, it, no, it's I guess. exactly right. And, it, it, you know, you put me in mind of the sort of start of our ocean training courses where we normally ask people, how do you make sure you're not missing anything? You know, yeah. how, do you, how do you potentially also think about breaking out of that filter bubble? So, what, you know, we've always said to people, try out different search engines, see what you find on them, see what you get. Um, it's been harder, I think, over the years to make an argument or a clear argument for saying to people, if you don't go to other search engines, you will, you know, be, you will have a high chance of missing something. 
I think in the past that was probably more the case, less so these days with a tool like Google because its index is so vast um, and it, it, it does overlap a lot from what we've seen. When we've done comparisons where we compared research results in Google, yeah, that's research really, results in Bing. That's a really good method, yeah. You don't tend to see a lot of difference for most topics, yeah. I, I find. Yeah. Um, so it's really hard for me to then make the argument to people we're training to say, oh, make sure you go to both, yeah. otherwise you're going to miss things. Um, what we do try and do is... Um, perhaps direct people to more specialist resources where we th- where they might have a more specialist requirement um, so that they can get information that might not be presented uh, so highly within the search engine's results because a search engine like Google is going to favor those more gen- generic or general sources, mm-hmm. new sources, for example. Um, it might not go into the more specialist resources when you've got a, a particular topic you're interested in. So one of the things we always do is try and flag up where there might be or, or get people, especially ocean analysts, I think they've got to be aware of what specialist resources are out there yeah. for their particular field or their particular topic that they're interested in, which is difficult to do sometimes. But um, yeah, there's a lot of handy sort of dashboards that have been produced that are out there on particular mm. topics, ocean-related yeah. topics yeah. Um, that people have curated and put together, which can be good start points. Um, you find a lot of those are actually, um, funnily enough, on start.me. So, start.me, Yeah, the, yes. the dashboard website. Yeah. It's always a good place to look. And I think if people... Are looking for you know one of one of the ways I try and find if anyone's put together a specialist dashboard is to in Google for instance do a, a site search so site colon start dot me and yeah. then whatever my keywords are yeah and yeah. see if there's any dashboards that come up because there's always more and more being created so yeah it's it's a potentially a way to find more stuff that may not be surfaced by a search engine straight yeah. away. And in the past, I think in the old days, we used to go to directories for that kind of thing. But yeah. you don't tend to find there are many directories around these days. Yeah, just just on that point as well. I mean, the way I go about finding uh, things like start.me and and the like is just by following OSINT oh, spe- yeah. specialists on Twitter. I mean, we've had great there's, there's a whole bunch of yeah. great OSINT analysts out there. Mm. Um, some of which have been on this podcast mm. and just following those guys on Twitter is just brilliant to get insights their insights uh, is one thing but the other thing is the information they share yeah. the dashboards they definitely, create definitely um, yeah. Yeah. and I think Twitter's a, a great place it's to, a great resource for to, that to yeah that's true I mean, don't get me wrong there is a lot of rubbish on Twitter there's a lot of, there's yeah. a lot of trolling um, <laughs> yeah. seen plenty of that recently um, but yeah at the same time there, it is a great resource and you don't yeah. even have to be on Twitter to get access to that exactly. you can just go straight onto Twitter uh, without logging in search it and you'll find you know uh, especially if people are looking there's um, like you said there's a lot there's a good OSINT community there is um, and it's growing all the time more and more people are contributing uh, things to that. The other thing about all this in terms of topic of searching is another part of this browser hygiene. Yeah, it's a good point. And we sort of touched on that last on the last podcast episode with uh, Rob Pritchard, cybersecurity expert, where we talked about minimizing your digital footprint yeah. and some of the steps you can take. A very basic, simple measure, you know, browser hygiene, take out the cookies. Um, so is that something you recommend doing at the start of every research session or...? Yeah, I think, I yeah. think if people if people have yeah. got the the time and the, the scope to do that, they should definitely think about setting that in as part of their workflow. Yeah, yeah. Um, so even at the end of each session, clearing out your history, clearing out your cookies, uh, just resetting and going again for the next session. Mm-hmm. What that means is sometimes you want to use perhaps a separate browser for doing your research. Ideal in an ideal world, we'd use virtual 
machines or separate machines to to do you know do a lot of our research on, which mm. I know is impractical in a lot of contexts. Um, but yeah, I, I certainly would advise people if you're doing searches and you find that the search engines keep sending you back to the same information sources, then maybe you're falling into a filter bubble. You need mm. to break out of it, and the, you know certainly then you want to look at okay, well, have I cleared out my cookies or have I done my browser hygiene? recently if not right let's get that done and then search again and see what happens and if that makes a difference or not I guess a big part of this is getting into the habit of reminding yourself to do that at the start of every every research session. Yeah, yeah, and it's. It, I think it's one of the things that the habits of OSINT. Yeah, the habits of the habits of OSINT. Yeah, there you go. That's a that's a book title right there. <laughs> um, yeah, the um, th- those are simple things that I think a lot of people overlook. Or well, people sort of you say it to them, and everyone nods, says yes, yes, yes. We know we should do that, and then goes away, and I'm sure that people forget. <laughs> it's kind of the it's connected. I think I guess to the immediacy of the internet, isn't it? You kind mm. of you get on there, you're on Google or whatever the search box is waiting for mm-hmm. you and you're just you, you're ready to go yep. so it's you're ready mm-hmm. to do your research right there so I guess it, that's kind of a little bit of a true yeah a memory yeah. check is just like clear yeah. it before you start and then you make you you, you do your yeah. best to ensure you're getting the, the most balanced results definitely and I mean one of the things that I mentioned on a training course we did, delivered in London last week was um, a resource that I think uh, people found useful and interesting another search engine and you know that always remember there are plenty out there but one that's I think grown in popularity and had more media coverage recently is Ecosia uh, which is a search engine where um, it's great for doing basic searches you know I don't think it's necessarily going to have as comprehensive a selection of information as Google will do so when you're doing your more detailed in-depth research perhaps you are, uh, aren't going to find as much in there but for your normal basic searches when you just want to quickly look something up that you know you're going to find you just have to use a search engine to find it um, it's it's great for that and I think so I think kind of disaggregating some of your searches really helps Right. Um, so going to other search engines for doing basic stuff and then maybe going to Google for the more specialist stuff might be a good approach uh, mm-hmm. to help you break out of the filter bubble and the nice thing about Cozier is that from the revenue they make from searches they plant trees and so they're helping mitigate the impact of climate change um, which you know anything ethical, ethical search engine yeah it's a very ethical search engine yeah. and I think we're all becoming conscious of the kind of carbon footprints we have and mm. you know all our online activity now is leaving more of a carbon footprint so you know all the, the search engines have got their big sort of data yeah. warehouses and, and servers that are churning out um, uh, a lot of energy or using a lot of energy and so churning out a lot of carbon um, as a result. And so, yeah, I think it's something we have to be conscious of that if you can offset some of that, you may as well. And I think it's quite topical at the moment because we've got obviously the, the big climate change conference going on in Madrid this week and it's something that we've had a lot more requirements on with a lot more questions coming to us this year about climate change as a national security topic you know as a as a a more and more important threat that people have to think about it's a more immediate threat i think Mm. you know in the last sort of five or ten years it's gone from being something that people thought they could worry about later to now being something that we really have to think about now um so we did a recent intelligence briefing um on the topic of climate change and the impacts for the military and that's something that militaries defense security organizations governments need to start planning for now if they're going to adapt to the way that climate change is going to shape the world in 20 to 30 years time just from an OSINT perspective I mean Mm. um, if if you are beginning research on a a topic that for example is not maybe 
on the surface is not necessarily or doesn't seem to be too connected to security and defence issues like climate change, for example, but as you just said, clearly is. Mm. Um, If you're beginning your research on new topics like that, I mean, like yourself, take Mm. us through your process in terms of, you know, how you begin to, you know, gather information on a topic Mm. such as climate change and security and how you plan for that. Great question. Um, I mean, yeah, I'm not going to pretend that I've got a huge depth of expertise on climate change. That's not something I've focused on a huge amount over the years. But as I said, because of the nature of the requests we've been getting in uh, over the last 12 to 18 months, it's been an area that we've had to focus on a lot more. So I've started to obviously read more. And I think generally we're all becoming more and more aware of it. It's making the news a lot more. Yeah. So we are being presented, I think, day to day with more information on climate change and what's happening. But that aside, you've still got to do a lot more digging in order to be able to produce something worthwhile in order to answer a client's questions usually. So for me, and this is sort of something I would do across any projects that I begin where I'm, I'm approaching, because I approach you know most specialist projects as a generalist, and so I don't necessarily always have a huge depth of expertise on those projects. Um, which I think is common for most people working sure. in open source yeah. intelligence. And so where I start is, um, and this is something we always advise on our training, look first, what have you done? What have you as an organization or a team done on the topic previously? Do you need to understand and plan for tomorrow's threats without diverting valuable resources from the threats you face today? At Jane's, we deliver a cutting edge, trusted open source intelligence on current, emerging and future threats and assessments of the capabilities you need to mitigate them. Jane's is the only single resource for comprehensive, structured, and connected intelligence on military equipment, inventories, and orders of battle, which means we can help you reveal previously hidden connections. We also provide data and insight on conventional and asymmetric threats, including terrorism, extremism, and organized crime. So, if you are tired of collecting and processing overwhelming volumes of inconsistent and unstructured data, let us reduce your workload. Jane's assess, validates, and verifies huge volumes of data and then adds insight you need to focus your resources. We can also help improve your open source intelligence capability through intelligence reporting, RFI services, and open source intelligence tradecraft training. If that sounds good, visit janes.com forward slash intelligence unit to find out more. So, you know, I did this intelligence briefing that's on the on Jane's website uh, on climate change um, just recently. But actually, we did one on more or less the same topic about eight years ago. Oh, actually, that's going back too far. I think it was in 2013, perhaps. Okay. okay. And so, you know, that was something that I could use as a bit of a reference point. Yeah. And, you know, listen to that and, and see, okay, well, what was the gist of the topic then? Um, but also, as well, you know, as well as looking internally, what have we got already? Um, and I, I did then what I do on a lot of similar topics uh, is I asked around. You know, I asked the rest of the, the team, the rest of our experts within Jane's. Yeah. You know, what are you guys seeing in terms of what militaries are doing around the world to help them adapt to climate change? Um, and then we're also fortunate in that we've got on hand experts from um, you know our adjacent uh, IHS market. Uh, colleagues yeah. or um, you know uh, experts that we that we're close to who uh, work in the climate and what is now the climate and carbon 
uh, team who are tracking and monitoring and measuring climate change and to explain it to customers within the energy sector and beyond uh, the energy sector. And they were fantastic in terms of helping me get on top of the, the intricacies of that topic. Um, and presenting me with some of their research. So just tapping into those expertise was a, a massive boost in trying to get me on top of what I needed to know to help research that topic. I think that's a really interesting point because if you talk about open source information, mm. uh, I think a lot of people, and me included as well in that, when I first started out in this area, you automatically think of information that's on the internet, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, everything's online. Yeah, everything's yeah, online. Yeah, yeah. But actually, another yeah. avenue of that is your contacts to peop- the people you know, right? Yeah, and being, yeah definitely. And, yeah, and you know your colleagues well, at, at yeah, work. And it doesn't always have to be people you know. Sometimes yeah. it can be people you don't know. And exactly. Just identifying experts yeah. who you can reach out to and contact, and you'll often find people are very approachable. Um, and you know, it's it's nice. I think for us also. One of the benefits, I have to say, of coming from Jane's is that generally people are very responsive to us. Hopefully that will continue <laughs> um, when we reach out to them and try and contact them for, you know, um, to ask for their assistance or advice on topics. Yep. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's something that I don't think people use enough. The other thing I would say is on your point there about online sources mm-hmm. – um, I know maybe I don't know if books have gone out of fashion completely, but um, you know I have had some success on a number of projects where just almost by coincidence there's happened to have been a book published just about the time that I'm looking into that topic, right? Which has been a really useful resource. Yeah, yeah. So you know, happy days. <laughs> yeah, it's always <laughs> worth having a quick scan of the the publishers yeah. um, to see what's come out. Um, you know, uh, you don't necessarily have to resort to some of the large online uh, booksellers. You could go direct to specialist publishers. I think it's worth knowing about different specialist publishers that are out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and, and that that's potentially somewhere. You know, if you can go and, and just quickly purchase a book um, or get one from a library or something like that. Yeah. Uh, to have a look at the information that's in there it can give you a great start point. It may not be as sort of bang up to date to the day of, of what you're doing, but at least it gets you on top of the context uh, for that topic. And so, and so the first step there is identifying your avenues of open source information mm. on a topic. And then after you've done that, I guess it's then about building searches, is it, would you say? And then get, yeah. is it about... Uh, you know, coming up with with keywords, keywords and putting yeah. them together. It's all about the keywords, definitely. Searching, yeah, searching in, in and getting on top of information is all about keywords, really. Uh, uh, you know, fundamentally, and knowing how to manipulate them, knowing how search engines will help you with different operators, mm-hmm. those kinds of things to help you get on top of um, different, or basically to help you drill down into the huge, vast sort of indexes of information that they've got to pick out the individual bits that you're interested in that's where the search operators come in is really just filtering down and I guess you, you've got to be you've got to keep your initial research question in mind right oh, I mean yeah, yeah. hopefully that's quite a specific yeah. question but sometimes not all, always like that um, yeah no, but I guess indeed. that dictates yeah. the, the, the you know yeah. what your, your search terms are going to be right? yeah and you know on, on the climate change one I mean for that briefing I started off with the broad topic of um, what would be the impact of climate change for militaries in, in sort of 20 or 30 okay. years um, but then you sort of realise that actually it's such a vast topic. There's uh, certain elements that you maybe can't cover in the space of a short briefing. So I had to leave aside one area that I was quite keen to look at, which was um, what are the new technologies that are coming out, in, especially in the defence sector, 
that are being adapted to climate change. So, you know, we're starting to see more electric vehicles actually being developed, um, hybrid engines for planes, for example, things like that, which which could also help militaries sort of adapt to climate change uh, in the future. But yeah, that was sort of an area that I just didn't have the scope for. So I think part of doing that is building out the questions that you really want to address and making yeah. them as specific as possible. You know, I'm, I'm guessing... Well, I know. I'm saying I'm guessing, but I know obviously <laughs> on the area that you work on, and in terms of drilling into social media, and that's you know an area that you, you, you probably spend more time on than I do these days. Again, you've got to be very specific in what you're, or have a specific question in mind when you're looking into it. But then I guess you're also approaching it from the perspective of doing more general monitoring. Would that be fair? Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, as with as with all kind of avenues of open source information, you, it all depends on your topic, I guess, in, in a way, and, and the topic that you're focusing on, uh, where those, in terms of social media, where those sources are based in terms of what social media platforms they they tend to use. Mm. So whenever I'm, I'm beginning, you know, research on social media, that's one of the first questions I asked is actually <clears throat> the, the community that I'm looking at you know, which platforms are they on? It sounds like an obvious yeah, yeah, question. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, there's some some companies out there like Hootsuite, for example, have done um, some great research on uh, the most popular messaging apps in particular countries. Mm-hmm. It's always worth having a look at that before mm-hmm. you start your research on social media because mm-hmm. you may think Platform X is so popular in, in country Y. Mm. Uh, and that may that might be the case, but you may be missing a, a different platform in that yeah, country. Um, uh, that is a, an important it will be an important avenue mm-hmm. for your research. So Yeah, so switching to thinking more about social media specifically, what sort of, or if any, big changes have you seen recently? Has there been some things that you've noticed that have affected your searching? Because I know earlier in the year we saw some big shifts, but anything in the last month or so? Um, well, we did have a, a crackdown on um, extremists on mm-hmm. Telegram, the messaging app course, Telegram. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, from, from that point of view, um, the analysts in this area are really looking at where extremists and specifically Islamist extremists, where they're going to be going to next. And this just really, um, I guess the wider point here, without getting into the, into the weeds of you know specific platforms, is you always have to have that inbuilt platform intelligence in your team. When something like this happens online, you know, more, more likely than not, your sources are going to mm-hmm. shift to a different social media platform. Mm-hmm. The question then becomes, you know, how well do you know that a new platform? Um, and you know, can you operate effectively on it in terms of searching for inf- information on it, and also in terms of you know trying to minimise your you know, your online shadow on that platform as well? That's the challenge, and that that's an ongoing thing in the world of social media, as I'm sure you're aware. Uh, it's a very kind of uh, fast moving world, different day, different platform. Right, <laughs> it's, right. it's the name yeah, of the game, yeah, of course, in this area. Well, are there any new platforms or newer platforms that you've been focused on more recently? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, one thing that we've been doing some research on in the in change intelligence unit um, in recent weeks is decentralized social media platforms. Mm. An example of a centralized platform would be Facebook or Twitter, for example, platforms that are controlled by a single entity that mm. sits on a specific set of servers. So the decentralized social media world is basically the opposite of that. So it's um, social media platforms that are controlled by multiple entities and based on multiple servers. Um, so there's no single point of control mm. in those platforms. Now, and who, who provides those servers then? Because obviously Facebook, well, I assume at least, that all of their data is held on servers that they own. Yes. Um, but with decentralized services, who owns that infrastructure? That's a really great question. So within this world of decentralized social media platforms, so we've been looking at something called federated social media networks. So 
basically these are a series of interconnected social media platforms that have been created from different source code. So that source code is publicly available and anyone can actually take that source code and then create their own social media platform. When you, when you take that source code and you create your own platform, you're effectively creating your own instance is what it's known as in the decentralized social media world. You, you create your own instance of that social media platform. Okay. So for example, Mastodon, is uh, one of the most prominent examples um, of this source code. So uh, there's been a bunch of developers that have developed that source code. And, and that's online. an open source tool, isn't it? It's an open source. Anyone can contribute to in terms of development or take the code and... Anyone can take that yeah, code and, and essentially create their own yeah. instance of Mastodon. I mean, Mastodon itself has its own centralized platform called mm-hmm. Mastodon Social. But then others have taken that Mastodon source code and then created their own instances of that. And those instances are connected. So they're connected with each other. Um, you can communicate between those platforms, but they sit on different servers and they're administered by the individuals who've actually created those platforms. Right. So it's decentralized in that sense. So um, decentralized, but still linked together. Still, still linked together. Yes, yeah, a little bit of a, a little bit of a halfway house, I guess, in, mm. in in some areas. You know, there's all different sites, communities in in social media world. I mean, in, in the decentralized social media world, it's a really uh, good place for for gathering information. And there's a couple of useful uh, tools that I use to try and build my awareness of what, what this kind of world is. So one is the Federation website. You can get it at federation.info. Um, basically, that allows you to see what federated social media projects there are. So Mastodon, for example, is, is one project. Uh, another project might be Diaspora. Another one is Paloma, for example. And these are just basically um, source codes that have been developed and then, and then publicized online. So you can take whatever you want from those platforms and create your own instance of them. Um, this actual website, uh, federation.info, it's pretty cool because you can basically see how many nodes or how many instances mm-hmm. there are of Mastodon uh, or of um, Diaspora or cool. whatever. Yeah. And another really cool one is the Fediverse so basically this one is called Fediverse.network and that basically allows you to search for or to see the most popular instances on each project. So if I want to see, you know, what's the most popular instance on Mastodon, for example, right. I could see it, see it okay. on that platform. And they're, they're, those websites are publicizing that because people will be interested in joining yeah. those most popular. I guess they're almost like little communities of their own, right? Based That's on a yeah. range of interests. Okay. Yeah, based on yeah. a range of interests. Yeah. So yeah, it's a great way. If, you, if you've got a particular interest, um, you could you know put your search terms in one of these websites mm-hmm. and it would g- give you back instances that are covering these particular topics. Got it, got it. So from an OSINT perspective, you're looking at those and thinking, right, let's have a look and maybe dip into one of these communities to see what kind of activity there is there. Exactly, exactly. I think one of the barriers in this area is um, if you identify a specific uh, instance, you then have to log into that instance. So it's it's not kind of completely open source from the ones that I've seen. Yeah. So again, that's well, it's kind of a barrier. But I mean, I guess you have to yeah, you have to create your own. I think certainly for people working in government, law enforcement, you know, agencies, departments, etc that's generally sometimes a line over which they've then, if they cross into anything where they've got to log in or use an account, then they've got to get some sort of approval because they potentially run the risk that they're going from doing general research into online surveillance, and so they've got to get the right approvals in place. So, yeah, that's certainly something that's, um, for some organizations, some OSINT practitioners, that's sometimes the point at which their research stops, but 
yeah, for others, it may continue just with the right approvals in place. Yeah, I mean, the, another point to add there is once you log into one of these, create an account in one of these instances, theoretically, you can then communicate with users on other instances, but that only goes part, part way, and it depends on the protocols of these these source codes. So not all the source codes communicate with each other. Interesting. Um, okay. So you, you can, it's a little bit com- complicated, mm-hmm. but you can see posts from another instance Mm-hmm. in some occasions mm-hmm. if those protocols talk to each other but the content you're going to find on those <laughs> social media instances is stuff that you're not going to find by searching Google right, right. it's stuff right. that you've got to you almost got to be in the know to figure out where it yeah. is and, and know whether there's anything useful or interesting there for your particular topic of research is yeah. that right yeah. I, I, would, I would say yeah I mean yeah. Um, I would categorise it now as one of the more obscure parts of, of the internet, but right. it's certainly a, an area that um, you know we're watching and, and going forward, we're going to be doing yeah. more. So you see, you see that sort of area growing. Yeah, I think, and also as as uh, you know, individuals or there's been you know certain kind of concerns raised in, in social media world about certain social media companies, mm. you know, gathering your data and. Mm-hmm. At controlling that data, I think this this world, this decentralized world, is kind of a reaction to that. Mm-hmm. It's kind of you can create your own platform out of that, which you control. It's, yeah, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned that because there was a, a nice little chart put out by um, Charter Daily, who, which is an Instagram account that puts out charts on ve- a huge variety of different topics each day. But they put out one a while back showing the, uh, and it was just taking. It was a very simplistic sort of set of data it was just looking at Google Trends and comparing the terms how to delete Facebook versus how to delete Instagram and there was a big spike for the mm. how to delete Facebook searches globally uh, around the time of the Cambridge Analytica scandal so I think I think since then and I think as more of that has rumbled on uh, you know obviously that, that was a one-off spike and th- that level of activity went sort of back to normal relatively quickly after but I think as a general trend certainly there seems to be more talk of People becoming disillusioned with platforms like Facebook. Mm. Um, I think they're not helping themselves with things like their, you know, this is purely my opinion, but they're not helping themselves with things like their policy on political ads. I think that's mm. also putting people mm. off um, the because it's just increasing the noise and the disinformation and things like that that are occurring on the platform. Um, and we've seen, I think, some media coverage recently of the uh, WT social platform, which is the Wiki Tribune social right. media platform, which yeah. is run by the same people who uh, run Wikipedia. I think and it's still, I think, in the initial sort of launching phase, testing phase, etc. But it's designed to be more privacy oriented. So yeah, I wonder if you know this, these areas are, are worth starting to get to know and become familiar with now, so that as they grow you're able to access information if there is useful information on there yeah. or quickly assess whether you find anything useful on there or not. I, I think that that's true. I mean, you, I guess in the in the decentralised social media world, you're always, you've got that concern, you know, how long is this particular instance going to last? Um, mm. But the, the fact that there there's so many instances out there um, means that, yeah, I mean that that world is going to is going to continue to you know uh, exist and, and probably probably going to expand in the future. Uh, and as a reaction to the more centralised platforms, uh, we may see, particularly if there's if there's calls on particular platforms, people are kicked off particular platforms for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, we may we may see, and indeed partly we've already seen in the extremist world, but mm-hmm. we may see um, certain communities gravitate more. Mm. So, for OSINT practitioners or OSINT teams generally. 
Does that mean then that if they want to be able to access information in those areas, they've got to apportion more kind of specialist resources or have somebody who's got the specialist skills and knowledge to access, know how to access those areas, quickly have a look, see if there's stuff of interest or monitor them and Without a doubt. you know, see when things might be popping up that could be of interest to them? In, definitely in terms of what you said yeah. and also in terms of what access you have to sources there. I mean, I mentioned a few minutes ago about uh, some of these protocols but don't speak to each other. Mm. So sometimes you may think you're logged into one instance and you've got access to all these other instances. That might not necessarily be the case. So I guess mm. for an OSINT team, it's understanding which protocols talk to each other. How many instances do you really have access out there mm. to? Um, so, yeah, again, it goes back to platform intelligence and having someone... Um, you know, in the team who is, you know, constantly aware of the updates to these platforms within and between these platforms. Mm, interesting. And platform intelligence specifically. I mean, that's yeah. something that I know you're working on regularly and, and keeping up to date on. And is that something that over the course of next year we can expect to see more of within the Jane's products? Definitely, definitely. So um, one thing, one of the things we're looking to do is certainly develop a lot more analysis on you know how these individuals are using specific um, social media platforms we already of course have uh, militant propaganda analysis which is one of our products which really is a great product for for understanding what uh, militants are saying online mm. so what we really want to do is kind of complement that and um, you know take forward a, a kind of a, an area that looks at actually not just what they're saying online but you know how they're doing it you know and what platforms they're using to voice that on, how they're using those platforms, yeah. and where they might be going to next, which is, of course, the million-dollar question. <laughs> yeah, indeed. I mean, you, you mentioned the uh, sort of activity by Telegram to close down some extremist accounts recently. Yeah. And I sort of saw that being mentioned, and I was wondering, is that first the first time Telegram has done that, or is that something they've done in the past? Because I know yeah. other platforms recently have been quite active in that area. Twitter's been doing a lot of that. Facebook, to some extent. YouTube, I know, is continually looking for that kind of content, obviously, and trying to get rid of it and, and obviously struggling to keep up. But, yep. um, but yeah, is it, was that new for Telegram? Was that something they've done a few times before? Yeah, my understanding is it's not new. Uh, okay. they, they have tried it before. And actually, if you're on that platform, uh, you will see specific channels um, dedicated mm -hmm. to identifying um, accounts linked to the Islamic State. Mm -hmm. It's been a part of an ongoing effort, I think, I mean, one of my one of my interests is looking at Islamist extremists in Southeast Asia. Mm. You talk about removing Islamic State accounts on Telegram, but from what I'm seeing, you know, their supporters in Southeast Asia, Islamic State, and Al Qaeda are still on that platform. Right. So you know, it's it's yeah. it's, it's a part part way of a, yeah. of a removal. But mm. and you know, a lot of these things will depend on what your research area is. I mean, um, we're just talking about Islamist extremists uh, on Telegram. You know, if you look at the extreme right on Telegram, mm. they are they are going ahead on that platform uh, relatively un unhindered. Right. So, so a lot of that activity is continuing. Yeah. Do you find with the groups that you're looking at, or the the kind of activity you're researching, um, do they tend to jump onto new platforms that become popular? So, and you're gonna have to forgive me here because I'm not. Isn't this is not from a platform I've used, but it's one you were hearing a lot about in the news recently, which is TikTok. Yeah. Uh, is that one attracting the kind of interest of people that you might be researching or the group kind of groups and activities that you're researching in, in, in trying to find you know extremist content 
Yeah, me personally, I mean, I've not seen any okay. examples of that. Um, that's not to say that they're not yeah. on there. Um, yeah. They they totally do experiment with new platforms. Right. I mean, one is um, a social platform called MeWe. Mm -hmm. Another one was BlabPad. Okay. Um, kind of like similar version, similar to Facebook, these platforms. Mm. Um but they're totally, you know, branching out and having having a little bit of a dabble in these different areas. I find the one they always come back to, though, is Telegram. That's where right. their, their, their core support seems to be. Interesting. Yeah, so, I mean, I was interested by this the, the recent story on TikTok of the the vlogger who um, was mm. posting videos of, of sort of makeup tutorials, etc., and then and then sort of did one about the um, Chinese persecution of Muslims in the west of China, in the, the Uyghurs, and. Yep. Um, yeah, it's it's fascinating to see how people are skirting around some of the censorship that is applied by some of these platforms, and also how those platforms are then running into problems because they may uh, have pressure to censor certain types of information in certain countries, but in others that attracts that type of criticism that means they have to retract those sorts of things. And That's a really interesting it's, case. It's, yeah, um, and it's, it's a really dynamic space in part because of that, I suppose, isn't it? I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, that, I mean, that, in that specific case is a great example of a user exhibiting good platform intelligence. Right, yeah, true. Um, yeah. And actually testing that platform. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, so it's not just from a from you know from individual from the perspective of individuals who are monitoring these platforms. I mean, users are actually getting better at understanding and using and using these platforms themselves. Yeah, no, indeed. Um, well, this is fascinating. I mean, uh, you know, I'm sure we could talk about this all all day, all day, but it's been a really interesting year, I think, for us. I mean, for you, um, what would you say have been the biggest sort of changes that you've seen in twenty nineteen? for open source intelligence and have you got any thoughts around where things might go next year or what we might expect to see mm. anything you're planning for for next year I think one of the biggest changes uh, the biggest things to note this year was um, you know, the lack of uh, ability to to conduct search queries on Facebook that was the, losing the some of those tools that we had before losing yeah. some of those tools yeah yeah exactly yeah, um, the intel techniques and the others yeah yeah you lost. losing yeah. some of that from my perspective from individuals other OSINT practitioners in, mm -hmm. I speak to it's been a real headache I mean there's been there's been ways around that that, that other OSINT specialists have, have come up with and published online some really useful guidance um but in the case of Facebook, it's it's, um, it's it can be quite difficult to get your head around some of those new ways of searching. So I think I think that's both the biggest thing from this year for me, and what I will try to be focusing on next year as well is to try and get my head around some more of those those specific search strings in order to be more effective at searching on social media. Interesting. Yeah. I guess the, the, yeah. the key thing is as well is, you know, in all of this, and we've spoke about before, haven't we, in previous podcasts, is to just know your know your sources. Because tools will come and go, but as long as you've got that, that subject matter knowledge as well as your um, established process of OSINT, which I think is something that we, that we highlight on our OSINT courses, you can then fall back on that process. Mm -hmm. um, and when tools go, you can kind of identify where the gaps are and then more easily identify what you need to do to address those gaps. As long as you've got a process there, I think that's the most important yeah. thing. No, I think for me, the biggest sort of things I think we take away from 2019 are the things that you've talked about there, but also the increasing quantity of misinformation that's out there. Mm. And hopefully, I think we're starting to see more and more initiatives now to try and get us beyond um, information which is potentially weaponized or trying to influence us in some way. Um, we've seen, for example, just, I think it was just today, it was announced, um, Google, we're going to stop 
political advertising ahead of Singapore's elections. Um, so things like that, I think, are going to help in time. But at the moment, the, I think we've just seen this huge increase in, in disinformation that's going on online. And I'm hoping that we're going to find more ways to try and combat that or find better ways of verifying information, especially as more and more information output gets automated. You know, that's a big challenge for normal open source intelligence researchers and practitioners. So yep. um, that, I think, is ref- that really broadly reflects, I think, from the kind of queries that we've had this year, especially in training, more and more people are asking, how do we get, how do we verify our information? What do we need to do to make sure it's reliable? This is an, uh, an overriding concern. It's always been there in the past, but it's much bigger than it has been. And so I think that's going to continue into next year. I don't think that there's any shortcut to it. I don't think there's any, uh, no one's come up yet with a silver bullet to help us figure out how to um, identify all the reliable information. Um, <laughs> but, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll sort of get better at spotting the uh, the bad information or the fake information, the fake news, the the uh, then the disinformation that's out there, and um, yeah, that's uh, an area I think that we're going to be all be working on next year. I think that's going to be a challenge for the coming years, actually, <laughs> as people get, yeah, no get, doubt. Get, no get, doubt. get more adept at. Uh, uh, the creation of, of fake news as well, yeah, or of yeah. disinformation, because yeah, yeah. um, just as much as uh, you know, individuals are skilling themselves up to better understand this area. Mm. Individuals that are producing this stuff are also skilling themselves. <laughs> it's a bit of a <laughs> yeah, it's a cat and mouse game. Cat and mouse yeah, game, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, on, on that note, um, thanks, Mark, for your time today. Um, sure. It's been another interesting conversation for us on our podcast and look forward to doing more of these next year. Uh, for anyone listening, thanks for your time listening to us. Uh, thanks to Josh for producing these. And, and what I'd like to put out to all our audience for this uh, podcast as well is to get in touch with us and send us any questions that you have, any things you'd like us to cover in 2020. And if there's any topics you're interested in, do let us know. And um, we we will do our best to cover those. Thanks for listening, and we'll hopefully speak to you on the next podcast. And for more information on how we can help with OSINT training and development, go to janes.com forward slash OSINT training.